Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast this week, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here with John Mitchell. It's been a couple of weeks since we got to talk with one another. Uh, last week I came down ill, which is why you did not hear from us last week. And then the week before, John was out of commission for uh, our recording, so you got a little bit of flying solo from Zach. But we're both here this week. It's been three weeks since I got to talk to you, John. How are things going on your end of the world? Going really good. Uh, been jonesing to be able to get on, on this forum and talk to you about college football and everything. Even with it being the off season. there's always stuff that's going on and needs to be discussed. So really excited to, to dive in and get back with you. Awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited as well. Well, for all of you out there, we've got a couple of great topics to talk about today, starting with Mark D'Antonio's sudden retirement and the quest for a new Michigan State head coach. In our second section, we'll be taking a little bit of a look at the transfer portal, especially in context of Justin Fuente's recent uh, assertion that Virginia Tech will not take back any players that put their name into the portal as well as UConn's decision under Randy Edsel not to even seek players in the portal. In our final section, we'll take a quick look at a recent release of Bill Connolly's returning production rankings at ESPN as a way of wrapping up everything and starting to look at how we'll assess 2020. Well, let's start out this week, as I mentioned, with the big story of the week, Mark D'Antonio... Uh, retired 20 days after receiving a $4.3 million bonus for being on the Michigan State staff through January 15th. And then, as I said, 20 days later, he announced his sudden retirement on February 4th. So, you know, this happened a little bit over a week ago, and it's been really interesting seeing just how this whole saga has played out. Um... What were your initial thoughts when you heard about this, John? You know, it was surprising. I think it caught everybody off guard, and just especially with the timing for it to happen, you know, right at National Signing Day time. Um, obviously, this National Signing Day now doesn't have as much weight as it did with the early signing period really becoming what feels like the real signing day. You only have a few holdovers that wait until February now because everyone wants to as much as possible enroll early and get a jump start on trying to play as a freshman as that becomes more of a norm across college football. So honestly, I felt bad for all the kids who had committed to Michigan State and already signed letters of intent with Michigan State under the guise that they would be playing for Mark D'Antonio and, you know, watching him retire during that. And, you know, I'm not going to fault a guy for calling it quits and retiring and everything. Obviously, D'Antonio's coached for a long time. He's earned the right to be able to retire. I just think the timing was really poor. I don't feel like this is something that was a spur-of-the-moment decision. I feel like this was something that he had probably been planning. Um, as you said, it's kind of convenient with the contract language that he had uh, for that bonus to kick in before he did so. So, honestly, I just hope, I hope there was some – honesty in the recruiting process for the for the group that Michigan State signed and they didn't sign a really 
strong recruiting class or anything like that this time. But, you know, there were plenty of kids who were committed to the Spartans who, you know, unfortunately probably had no idea that this was coming and really wanted to play for him specifically. And now all of that's up in the air. And I, I think that's really unfortunate. And it's another, another case of, um, you know, really thinking that these players should have the opportunity. Honestly, every single one of those players, in my opinion, should have been released from their national letters of intent and should have been free to explore other options. And even if that's the case, though, Zach, there's just so many schools that have already filled their recruiting classes at that point that there's not a ton of options at that point. So uh, it just goes back to the whole thing that I've really, you know, a lot of people have preached for a long time, and that's, you don't commit and you don't sign with a coach. You sign with a school. You find a school that's the right fit for you, and the coach is really, you know, the cherry on top of the Sunday. Yeah, certainly. I mean, as much as the notion of playing for Mark D'Antonio certainly rang solid with some of these players, I think for the most part, the kind of recruits that Michigan State got we're probably going to be Spartans regardless. You know, it, it, what, as you mentioned, this was the 43rd ranked recruiting class in the nation and 10th in the Big Ten, according to the 24-7 sports composite. The one thing I found really interesting, even more than that buyout and the timing around that, is the fact that the night before he finally announced his retirement, there was a motion filed in a lawsuit against him and against the school by a former recruiting coordinator, Curtis Blackwell, um, basically alleging that D'Antonio had accompanied uh, Blackwell on in-home recruiting visits against NCAA rules and um, that there may have been uh, NCAA violations around boosters providing jobs for the parents of players. Um, this lawsuit stems, you know, this was sort of an ancillary thing coming out of that that could lead to some NCAA, you know, violations down the road and some NCAA sanctions. But this lawsuit, does, you know, what it really centers on is this February 2017 investigation around alleged sexual assault by three Spartans football players and this idea that Blackwell was interfering with the investigation. Um, he was never actually charged, and D'Antonio decided not to renew his contract and really, you know, that wrong, this notion of wrongful termination and unlawful arrest is what's at the heart of this uh, lawsuit. But at the same, you know, the big thing right then, that bombshell that drops on Monday night around D'Antonio possibly, possibly being culpable in various recruiting violations just has another sort of layer on this story that I think makes his timing way more than just convenient or, or circumstantial. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of what comes out over the next few weeks and months and stuff like that, because this, you know, easily could be the something where, you know, he tucks his tail between his legs and runs away from East Lansing with all that's coming um, in the future. What's been really interesting, too, is it's not just a bad time for the recruits. It's a really bad time for the program in general, right? Because so many coaches have already kind of moved on and focused their attention towards next year and stopped thinking about 
you know, a potential change because the coaching carousel really felt like it had stopped spinning. Yeah. At that point, at least from a head coaching perspective, you always still have some assistant coaches that kind of flip around after national signing day. But, you know, and so far, Michigan State's had a really tough time filling that position. They've gone after some bigger names and everything. Obviously, Luke Fickle um, from Cincinnati was a guy that was really, uh, really, you and I had talked about that months ago about the potential for him to depart the Queen City to head up to East Lansing. And he actually turned down. Uh, Michigan State to stay at Cincinnati, which is a huge win for the Bearcats program and really for the group of five as a whole to be able to hang on to that kind of a coach that has the Midwestern ties. Uh, you have a guy like Mel Tucker at Colorado who also turned down the potential to, to go after the Michigan State job. So, you know, really they're getting down to option C, D, E, F, G, H, I. You know, they're really starting to exhaust their coaching list trying to figure this out. And it's interesting because I, I think D'Antonio, did, obviously he did a really good job at Michigan State the last couple of years, notwithstanding there was a run there um, for Sparty between 2010 and 2015, which five of those six years, they won 11 plus games. There was three Big Ten championships, a berth in the college football playoff. So obviously you can win big at Michigan State. But when you look at the competition in that division, Zach, when you look at it, that's still probably the fourth best job in the Big Ten East when you look at Ohio State, Michigan, and Penn State always going to be ahead of Michigan State. And I think that's given a lot of coaches pause um, when it comes to trying to figure out if they want to make that leap. Because you've got a guy like Luke Fickle, for instance, who's at probably the preeminent group of five job at the moment. When you think about the fact that Cincinnati's I think three or four straight recruiting cycles has finished with the number one recruiting class among group of five programs. So, and especially with, you know, the recruiting ability you have in a big city like Cincinnati, them and probably UCF are the two preeminent jobs right now in the, in the group of five. And whether you want to make that leap towards a power five program, that's always going to be facing an uphill battle. So I, I, I do wonder now where Michigan State turns uh, to find a head coach. Yeah, you know, I, Fickle was definitely option A for them. But you mentioned this recruiting success over time. And you even look at this year's recruiting cycle. Cincinnati ranked three spots higher than Michigan State in recruiting. Um, again, according to 24-7 Sports and their team composite. So... Cincinnati's just tooling and retooling and building up that program into what could quickly become a group of five behemoth. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we've seen names floated around like Brett Bielema, the former Wisconsin head coach, who's now the outside linebackers coach with the New York Giants. Uh, Pat Shermer, the defend, the Denver Broncos offensive coordinator, who's a former Michigan State alumnus, um, has been thrown out there. You obviously have, you know, the coaches of directional Michigan schools like Chris Creighton at Eastern Michigan and Jim McElwain at Central Michigan. But, you know, in general, it's... It, it's throwing darts at a board at this point for the team. The The most likely scenario, I think, is that Mike Tressel, the team's defensive coordinator, who was named the acting head coach after 
uh, this sudden retirement by D'Antonio probably serves out the year. Like, I really don't know um, who who they're really going to get in at this point. I, I think that, you know, the two NFL names that have been thrown out there, Bielema and Shermer, are probably the most likely to take on that head coaching job. Um, Bielema obviously has Big Ten experience. He's a proven commodity in the conference, but given how he torched the Big Ten on his way out to take the Arkansas job, you got to really wonder what his long-term motivations would be at a school like that. And then, you know, we've seen other guys like Harlan Barnett. Obviously, he's a former Michigan State defensive back and was formerly a co-defensive coordinator there under uh, under D'Antonio. But we saw him kind of flame out at Florida State in his last stop. You know, we've also seen names like Jim Leonard, the Wisconsin defensive coordinator, thrown out there. Um, even even head coaches at other Power 5 schools like Justin Wilcox and Mark Stoops at Cal and Kentucky, respectively. Again, this is, you know, any one of those would be a... a a best case scenario that probably isn't coming to fruition, especially at this point, you know, with any head coach in the, the power five ranks, there's really no reason to jump ship at this point. And so I I honestly think it's probably going to be Trestle taking on that job as acting head coach serving as interim until they either remove that tag from him or set themselves up for a more comprehensive search next, next winter. I, you know, I actually really like that idea for the Spartans, to be honest, like, you know, it's kind of similar to Mike Trestle's uncle Jim when Ohio state and all that happened. And the Buckeyes ended up having Luke Fickle serve out the year as the interim head coach. And obviously things didn't go swimmingly for the Buckeyes that season. I believe they went six and six and they went and hired Urban Meyer the next off season. And obviously that kind of changed everything. And Michigan State's not going to find an Urban Meyer on the coaching carousel or anything next year, but this late in the cycle, they could be best served to give Trussell a shot. And, you know, if things don't go well with him and you don't think he's a long-term long-term viability as the head coach there, then yeah, you, you reassess and maybe you're able to make a splash next off season. Maybe you can find, maybe Luke Fickle next year is willing to make a move, you know, depending on what happens with the Bearcats this season, you never know. So I actually like that. Um, all the other candidates that have been really discussed, it's just really hard to get excited about. I don't think Michigan state fans would be super excited about. You mentioned Brett Bielema. Obviously he's had some success in Madison with the Badgers, but with what happened on his way out, what happened with him in Fayetteville as the Arkansas head coach too. I mean, just look at what the Arkansas program is right now. Look at where it was before he got there. Look at where it is right now. And it's hard to really reckon with that. Um, Jim McElwain's obviously had a lot of success as a group of five head coach, but he also flamed out as a power five head coach at Florida. Though I do think that McElwain still has a lot of potential as a power five coach in the right situation and this could be the right situation. Um, so he's the name to me, I think, that probably made the most sense. I don't think he's going to inspire a ton of excitement from the fan base. But overall, I think he could be a guy that 
you know, probably isn't going to experience that run of success that D'Antonio had in East Lansing um, from 2010 to 2015. Uh, and we might not see that level of success there again for a long while, but a guy that would have, um, you know, a good run there, a guy that's going to win you seven, eight games a year. And, you know, it, it all depends. I, I think Michigan State fans have delusions of grandeur now to the point that they think they're a top 10 program when obviously this coaching carousel so far has, has done more to reinforce that they're more of a, a, a middle tier job. Yeah. And I mean that, that really bears out in what we saw with the recruiting numbers as well. So on, you know, on that note, I, I think it, it does make sense to sort of look at this as that transition year, especially this late in the game. So, so Trestle is I, I, other than you know suddenly landing some you know wild card that we haven't even discussed. I think that's probably the way it plays out. I mean, it's not like they're bringing Nick Saban back to East Lansing or anything. So no, no, John L. Smith probably still available. That's true. And, yeah, Trestle's probably the safe choice there. (laughs) Well, on that note, everybody, we're going to take our first quick break here. And when we come back, we'll be talking a bit about the transfer portal. Stay tuned. Welcome back after the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We discussed Mark D'Antonio's sudden retirement in our previous segment, We're going to be shifting now to talk about some current head coaches and their feelings about the transfer portal. Uh, We've talked at length in this podcast about where we each stand on the transfer portal and what it does for players themselves. But some of the recent news that's come out about how different schools feel about the transfer portal, it has us revisiting this topic a little bit. Uh, especially the recent comments by Justin Fuente that happened last week, where he said that Virginia Tech will not take back any player that puts their name into the transfer portal. I think that it's really fascinating, especially coming from a guy like Justin Fuente, who was all gung-ho to go talk to Baylor and, and assess his options at possibly going to a different Power 5 school. Um, you know, it's sort of that do as I say, not as I do mentality where coaches feel perfectly fine while they're under contract, uh, looking, you know, casting a wandering eye, but at the same time, they moralize about a player doing the exact same thing when they have a finite amount of time to, you know, potentially build up a professional career. Um, out of their their college participation. I think it's also interesting considering the fact that Virginia Tech probably wouldn't have won even eight games this season if they hadn't brought Hendon Hooker back into the fold and had him there to play quarterback. So I, I don't know about you, John, but I really feel like this could potentially be the Hokies biting themselves in the ass here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Virginia Tech's been hit pretty hard by the transfer portal the last couple of years. And if we were looking for a reason why, it's probably because of stupid comments like that from Justin Quinte. Yeah. If he's saying like that, stuff like that publicly, 
to where anyone can hear it. What's he saying to these guys behind closed doors? That's obviously probably rubbed some of those players the wrong way. And when you're a coach who honestly could be fighting for his job still, I mean, the, I don't think there's a ton of fans in Blacksburg that have been particularly happy with the direction of the program so far under Fuente. I think they, you know, after a rough start to last season, they bounced back, but they still saw that long winning streak um, against Virginia end at the end of the year, uh, which cost them the Coastal Division title, um, and then they lost the bowl game to Kentucky. So, I mean, things haven't gone swimmingly so far for Fuente jumping from Memphis over to Virginia Tech. So I, I don't know. I, to me, if I'm a coach who, you know, isn't on the particularly coolest of seats, I would probably steer away from making those kind of broad, um, introspective comments like that, um, Zach. I don't know. It, it, it just doesn't seem – it doesn't seem very self-serving for him at this point. No. I, I mean, your job as a coach is ultimately to use the best talent at your disposal to get the best results you possibly can. And for Virginia Tech, you know, they're losing a lot of talent if they offer them no avenue back into the fold if they decide to come back to, to Blacksburg and, and decide to play at Lane Stadium another year. I, 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 I'm with you there. I, I think especially given the trajectory of Justin Fuente's career, and the fact that he's never been shy about talking to another program and assessing his options about possibly moving to another program. It, we talk about it plenty of times with head coaches and the way that they treat the labor force that they have at their disposal, but so much of so much of that discourse is just absolutely hypocritical. And for a guy like Fuente to say I'm perfectly fine uh, interviewing somewhere else, considering somewhere else and coming back, but you're not. It, he's really doing himself a disservice. He's doing the Hokies program a disservice. And ultimately, he could be putting himself onto the unemployment line with comments like that. So... Yeah, it, it continues to be a double standard between coaches and players and their ability to do it. Like you said, players have a much more finite amount of time that they're able to do this. Coaches, you know, if they're, you know, as long as they're not losing every game they play, they're going to have plenty of opportunities, plenty of time. You know, Justin Fuente doesn't have a cap on how many years he can be Virginia Tech's head coach or anything like that. A player has a cap on how many years they can play college football. So it's more reasonable for a player to look and explore his options based on that than it is for a coach. And and like you said, it is really just so disingenuous of a guy to a guy who, like you said, explored potentially making the move west to Waco to take the Baylor job this offseason. The guy who's already left one program in Memphis to go to Virginia Tech to really, you know, denigrate a, a player for potentially trying to at least weigh their options and saying, if you go in the portal, then, you know, we don't want you anymore. And then on the other side of that, Zach, there was Randy Edsall at, at Connecticut saying that he doesn't want any players from the transfer portal because he thinks they have, you know, issues because of that. And, you know, 
If I'm Randy Edsall, any player who's willing to put on a helmet and jersey of Connecticut at this point would be welcome at my program as bad as things have been going for the for the Huskies. Yeah, you think about a program like UConn in terms of the fact that they're now, you know, out of the American Athletic Conference, they're going to be playing as an independent school. You're already kind of behind the eight ball there, just with those circumstances alone. And again, you know, Virginia Tech is one story as a power five school, obviously. A school like UConn that was a bottom feeder in the group of five, and is is fighting an even bigger Promethean battle now, it's absolutely absurd. You, you know, Edsel had previous success in his first stint there in stores, but that was when this team was a Big East team, and in a Big East that still had automatic qualifying status. So... You know, he's already in a situation that's vastly different and vastly less fortuitous than he was previously when he had that first run of success. And you you can't pull out any stop if you're going to revive that program. And at this point, the, the notion that, you know, whether... And he was fairly vague about this, but you get the idea that he's basically saying that a guy who decides to put his name into the transfer portal has character issues. Like, that's the inference of this. But, you know, how is that... You know, there's no way of quantifying or justifying an assertion like that. You you can't guarantee that a person is leaving a school because of some character issue they had at their previous school. It is simply not having opportunities to do what you do on the field or what you, you know, you came to college to be doing. Send people looking other directions, which is a completely fair thing to do, as we mentioned, because frankly, first of all, the mechanisms are in place to allow for that. That's what the NCAA transfer portal is, is that allowance and that understanding that choosing a school at 18 doesn't necessarily mean you've found the perfect fit for you. You could be in a situation where, you know, you, you, the coach that recruited you decided to have a wandering eye and go choose a different job. Uh, they could have been fired. You, you know, you could be in a scheme that, formerly fit your talents but now suddenly doesn't because of a new staff that comes in there are so many different reasons why players transfer and I think it's really funny especially that Edsel says he has no problem going after junior college players um, who could very well have started their careers at an FBS institution you know, realized they weren't cutting it and decided to go to the JUCO ranks for a bit and before retooling and reassessing their next move. So, it, you know, is somebody who does something like that a character issue? Uh, any more so than somebody who decides to go straight into the transfer portal rather than taking this ancillary step of going to the junior college ranks. Right. And I mean, it's just... 
discriminating towards players who are entering the transfer portal just makes no sense in any way, shape, or form. Because we've talked about this before, too. You mentioned all the reasons you might transfer because of the schematic fit or stuff like that on the gridiron. But there's so many other reasons that you could transfer from a school that have nothing to do with your athletic profile. You know what I mean? Like, there's so many reasons that just you go to a school and it's just not a good fit. You don't feel like you're fitting in with your classmates. You don't feel like the classes you're taking are good. Maybe you went to a college that was further away from home than you really realized that you were ready for. You don't have that support system in place that you feel like you need. There's so many reasons that someone can transfer. And it's just ridiculous to me because no one gives grief to you or I when we wanted to transfer schools. We weren't given grief like, oh, I don't know. You shouldn't do that. That's not how you're supposed to do it. You know, but it's athletes, any any athlete who decides that maybe their circumstances aren't what they want them to be and they decide to move on to another school, there's this faction of people who decide that, you know, they should question their character for doing so or question their mental fortitude or physical toughness because they can't cut it at the current school that they're at. And that's just ridiculous to me because, I mean, there's so many people who transfer schools during their, during their collegiate career. You and I are both examples of that. Yep. That, you know, needing to find somewhere else that's an even better fit. Maybe, you know, you decided, and how many people change majors during their collegiate careers? I mean, that happens consistently. You know, I, I've seen dozens of people just in my own personal life. I know that started going to college and changed majors. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I know that happens all the time, and it could be a thing that some of these guys decide that what they were going to be studying in college wasn't what they thought they wanted to do. They looked through other courses, figured out, oh, this school doesn't even offer this course that I really would like to study, but maybe uh, random school X does, and maybe that's a transfer destination for me. And people don't realize that that plays – you know, a factor in that kind of stuff as well, because not all these guys are going to go on to the NFL. Not all these guys are going to play professional football. The majority of them aren't going to play professional football and getting a degree and getting a degree in something that fits you and will lead to success off the gridiron is so important. Yeah, no, it, it, it's a point that has to be made because you know, if the NCAA and its member institutions are going to peddle this line that it's about molding young athletes to be ready for life in something other than sports, going pro in something other than sports, well, you damn well better have the mechanisms in place for them to, you know, have everything necessary to find that success outside of sports. You know, you mentioned people that change their majors. How many people even know what they want to major in when they're 18 years old? I went to school as an 18-year-old pretty much having no clue. And yes, I ostensibly filled out on the forms that I was looking at political science and possibly international affairs. But I had, I mean, I wasn't really wedded to those. I had no real idea what the hell I would with a degree in one of those if I actually did continue on and, and, and carry it out to its, you know, logical course. Even when I came back to school 10 years later, I thought I was going for journalism. And, you know, I transferred my credits to a school that 
didn't have an actual J school. And, you know, I ended up down the path of history. It all worked out for me in the end. But my undergraduate degree, uh, my undergraduate transcript has lines on it from three different institutions. And, and you know, that's not a crime. That's That's not something that should be frowned upon if... Ultimately, the person is getting a degree in something that really works for them. So, I'm with you there. I I think, you know, looking at these two cases sort of juxtaposed against one another, you know, coaches are doing themselves a disservice. They're doing their teams a disservice. They're doing their fan bases a disservice to you know, categorically shut down any discussion about A, players getting to come back if they recognize, you know, after their look that their current situation is the best one for them. And secondly, if, you know, there are players who can help out your team who want to come to your school, you just categorically say, we're not giving you the time of day. You're basically setting yourself up for failure you're setting up your fan base for failure you're setting up the other guys in the locker room for failure and you know ultimately you're setting yourself up to to be looking for a new job yourself (laughs) and uh you won't have the benefit of having a school to come back to in that case like fuente did when he went wandering toward Waco. So it's funny. These coaches and some analysts and fans want to consider these kids, student athletes only when it's convenient to consider them student athletes. It's a great point. It's exactly it. You know, um, when it comes to something like the transfer portal, they're athletes, they're athletes first, foremost, and solely. And when it comes time to, treat them like the labor force, the athletic labor force that they are, they're suddenly students. And but they're they're students without the opportunities that any student outside the purview of the NCAA would have. So I I, I think we're we're pretty much in agreement on that. I wasn't expecting anything otherwise. I'm sure those of you listening out there probably had a good idea what direction we were going to take with this if you've been listening to previous editions of the podcast, but I think it needed to be reiterated in light of these comments from these two coaches. I'm sure it won't be the last time it has to be. Nope. You'll you'll be hearing this again, folks. I'm almost certain of it. But on that note, let's take our final break here quickly before we come back and shift gears toward a little bit more fun topic in terms of looking at some returning production rankings. Stay tuned, everybody. Welcome back for our last segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody. We've had a couple of somber topics to talk about. Mark D'Antonio's sudden retirement, all the swirl around the Michigan State program, and then some coaches' comments Uh, narrowing the influence of the transfer portal on their own schools and what that does to both players and programs. Now let's shift gears and talk a little bit about the 2020 season since, you know, there's no better time than the present to start projecting forward. 
Recently, Bill Connolly, formerly of SB Nation and now at ESPN, released his annual returning production rankings. Uh, both John and I have mentioned in the past that we absolutely love uh, some of the work that Bill Connolly does in terms of his sort of advanced statistics and looking at, you know, just different facets of the game through the numbers. And these, you know, returning production rankings are always absolutely fascinating because they, you know, they tie into that SP plus and, you know, the way that production isn't equal across different levels of a defensive or an offensive unit. And uh, it's just always fun to see, you know, what teams might have the chance to make that leap forward, which teams might be set up for a fall backward. And uh, so, yeah, let, we're, let's dive in a bit and look at some of these numbers. I think... Uh, I think one of the interesting ones is looking at a team like Virginia Tech, who we talked about in that last segment. Connolly has them ranked sixth nationally in the FBS in terms of returning production to the school. Um, basically says they're returning 82% of their overall productivity from 2019. So this is kind of like a, a make-or-break year for a guy like Justin Fuente, which... You know, we see that with a couple of coaches. I think the big stories here, you know, Northwestern and Georgia Tech top this list. There's only so much we can expect from schools like that, especially with, you know, as, uh, you know, the uphill battles they face in their own divisions and their own conferences. But, you know, Virginia Tech was a win over Virginia away from playing for the ACC championship game for the second time in Fuente's tenure there in Blackburg, Blacksburg. And then you also have, you know, a school like USC where Clay Helton was, you know, sort of projected to possibly be on the hot seat and on his way out of town in Los Angeles. Instead, he's bringing back a top five team in terms of its returning production. So I, you know, I think a story like that really, you know, when you're, you have this much talent coming back, it really does set up a, a sort of make or break scenario for a coach, especially if you're on a short tether. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, and that's something that your administration is going to look at too. You know, there's not going to be a long leash for a guy like Clay Helton this year, knowing that all the talent that USC brings back in 2020 there, you know, should be a significant uh, progression for the Trojans. You would think um, this season on the opposite end of that spectrum, you got a Jim Harbaugh at Michigan, potentially fighting for his job and the Wolverines coming in at 125th in the country and returning production. So, you know, it, it's kind of interesting which you, which one, would you rather be on? Because if you're hardball, you've got the built-in excuse, well, yeah, we're a young team. We lost a lot of pieces, replacing, you know, so many key cogs on our team. And at USC, you've got all this talent coming back, which is a good thing until you lose a couple games. And it's hard to kind of rely on an excuse because you can't use the the youth excuse um, in um, Los Angeles next year. So that's definitely interesting. There was a couple other ones that really stuck out to me. I was really interested in the fact that Louisville was 13th in returning production, uh, particularly when you think about how 
big of a leap they made in Scott Satterfield's first season with the Cardinal to begin with. So to really think about how good Louisville could be next year, they could be a real sleeper team in the ACC, potentially jumping up towards the double-digit win mark. And then Oklahoma State being in the top 10 in returning production. Uh, it's been a little while since Mike Gundy's Cowboys have been a legitimate Big 12 contender. Um, so it'd be interesting because it does kind of feel like at least this early in the preseason that the Big 12 feels pretty wide open next year with Jalen Hurts moving on from Oklahoma, with Texas always feeling like they're in transition, um, with Baylor losing their head coach and moving on to Dave Aranda, um, that it could be a pretty wide open race. And with Oklahoma State bringing back all the talent they got, particularly with Chuba Hubbard, deciding to return to Stillwater, that the Pokes really could be um, potentially a, a real threat to grab the Big 12 this year. Yeah, I, I think it's a great team to look at there in terms of what this returning production could mean, especially under an established system like Mike Gundy has there in Stillwater. You know, you also mentioned Louisville, and I think it's, Awesome to think about them as a potential spoiler in the ACC, especially, you know, when you compare it to a, you know, Clemson is 96th in returning production. Obviously, they recruit on a far stronger level than anybody else in the the ACC at this point. But at the same time, talent takes time to mature. And you're, you know, you're not always going to have true freshmen come in and light up the world like, you know, Trevor Lawrence was able to, but it, it, you know, that really kind of does raise a question as to whether we might see a changing of the guard there. Another one I really want to want to talk about is Utah dead last in terms of returning production. It, it's something where you can look at a list like this. And last year it was basically the Utes were all in and ultimately, you know, they, you know, they hit on 19 and they came up bust in the, the PAC 12 championship and in their bowl game, and now you kind of have to wonder, what does that do for the rest of the pack in what's been a wide-open Pac-12 South race the past couple years? Uh, obviously, that could bode well for a team like USC, as we mentioned, that has so much returning talent. Um, but then it also just puts more pressure on everybody else in, in that that division. You know, a team like Arizona is in the top 30, and you've got to wonder... You know, how much longer does a, a guy like uh, Kevin Sumlin get there in, in Tucson? And, you know, you look at sort of the the tooling that's happened around with Arizona State, especially with bringing in new coordinators on the defensive side of the ball and, and what that can do for a team like that. Um, you got to think time's running short on a guy like Chip Kelly at UCLA, and this could be just the shot that he needs there as they sit, you know, right there in the middle of the road in terms of returning production. So that could be a really interesting scenario moving forward. But, you know, you have a team like Utah that, you know, the, the, the door kind of shut a bit on them. I think it's also going to be interesting to see how Minnesota fares next season. You know, they were right on the cusp of playing for the Big Ten this year, but 
you know, they have a lot of returning talent on offense, but one of the sixth six least experienced defenses coming back. So that could obviously lead to sort of a backslide and a regression back to the mean for a team like the Golden Gophers. Right. No, both very, very interesting. Um, I thought Utah was definitely one that stood out to me as well. I was also interested in LSU, another team that really went all in in 2020. And obviously they hit on 19 and hit blackjack. So yeah. uh, the Tigers were uh, very, um, very fortunate, very, they jumped on and went all in in 2020. And now they've lost a ton, not to mention several coaches, Joe Brady moving on to the NFL, being replaced with Scott Linehan, which is, you know, a different conversation for a different day, obviously, but that seems like a pretty massive regression in, in that kind of uh, aspect um, and we're looking at we talked about Michigan State uh, in the opening segment and they're 117th in returning production so whatever coach ends up in East Lansing isn't going to have a lot of experience to work with in 2020 and coming with a team that's coming off just winning what seven games last year so that's interesting as well but I always really love these lists it's such a great resource uh, for people like us who spend so much time talking and writing about college football to be able to refer to this. Um, and, you know, obviously some teams are able to deal with the fact that they don't have a ton of returning production back a lot better than others. You have the Alabamas, the Clemsons, and, and schools like that who can deal with losing a lot of talent because they replace a blue-chip uh, draft prospect with a blue-chip recruit. Well, there's other schools like, you know, Kansas, for instance, that's 126, and Les Miles is trying to build something up in Lawrence. And he's got to deal with losing pretty much all of his production from last year. And maybe it's not always a bad thing for those schools either, because sometimes not all returning production is good production. That's true. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's something to really keep in mind and sort of take these lists as well for what they're worth. Because you're absolutely right. A, a school like, you know... I don't know, let's just pick one from the list, you know, New Mexico State. You know, losing exactly half of your total production isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world if your returning production didn't get the job done. Uh, You know, a team like, uh, you know, an FIU, they're, you know, in the hunt, but they're not in the hunt, and you've got to figure guys coming in to, to replace others on offense might just be the shot in the arm that a team needs, especially in some of those group of five races where, you know, one or two players can really swing the narrative. Um, then you also consider something like a, a service academy. You know, you've got Air Force down there at 128. Army's also outside the top 100. I think Navy is like 87th in returning production. Schools like that are just inevitably going to deal with that sort of churn because, you know, these are programs that you're not necessarily there with football as your primary purpose. So, you know, we talked about that in the last segment in terms of the various reasons why guys go to school in the first place and... 
you know, I those programs have successes and failures despite what happens there in terms of who's back this season or the other season. Right. No, I, I absolutely. There's several intriguing teams. On, I think the, the ACC is maybe the one of the more intriguing conferences because they've been the, the whipping boy for Power 5 conferences in recent years because it's Clemson and a bunch of also Rams is what it's felt like. But if you look at the list at the top two, you've got, you know, Georgia Tech, number two, Virginia Tech, sixth, Louisville, 13th, and then North Carolina, 18th. So you've got quite a few teams in the top 20 there returning production that are bringing back a lot of talent. Intriguing teams, especially like North Carolina and Louisville, who overachieved, it felt like, in 2019 and could really become threats in 2020 we saw North Carolina push Clemson to the absolute brink in Chapel Hill uh Chapel Hill earlier in 2019 and then Virginia Tech was a win away from winning the the coastal division and brings back as much talent as they brought back as long as they you know stay on the right side of the transfer portal so um there's a, a lot of intrigue I think in that conference especially but you know it'd be interesting to see there's still some potential roster attrition that happens I was also intrigued, too, Zach, by Houston being third in returning production, despite the fact that Derek King uh, departed and stuff like that. So that'll be interesting for Dana Holgerson's second season. So a lot of really interesting numbers. It's fun to dive into this list. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Houston. That's one that definitely needs to come up. And that's largely on the strength of their defense more than their offense. And given how Houston's defense performed last year, again, you got to read, you know, kind of deeper behind these numbers sometimes to wonder whether or not that returning production uh, will necessarily translate into wins. But, you know, a, a list like this at least provides us with a baseline to start thinking about those sorts of questions in a way that you just can't without data. Absolutely. Well, everybody, um, I highly recommend going to check out Bill Connolly's most recent list at ESPN.com. Uh, and if you have any thoughts about teams that stand out to you in one way or another, feel free to hit up both of us on Twitter. Uh, shoot us a line at Saturday Blitz on the podcast uh, post up on the website. Feel free to comment there as well. Um, but we'd love to hear from you. Where, who do you think is going to be the biggest beneficiary of returning starters? Who do you think is going to be the team that could be due for a big backslide without a lot of their talent returning? But on that note, it's been really great getting to talk again. Uh, as, as we said, it's been three weeks since John and I were both here with you. And we'll be back here again next week, uh, everything willing, uh, for our regular Wednesday morning chat. And uh, until then, keep having fun thinking about football, because we're in the long off season, and all we've got now are a lot of thought experiments. So enjoy your daydreaming. Hopefully it helps get you through the rest of your work week and through a long weekend without any college football. And we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for tuning in.